Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. It's the Sunday debate, and today an issue that the UK has struggled to agree on or even come to terms with for the past six years. There was a winner of the vote, but should the vote have even taken place at all? Over the next hour, we'll be debating the motion, We Were Right to Brexit. Last week on the podcast, we listened back to a clash from 2019 debating the rise of populism. This week, we have a new discussion on one of the most impactful and controversial decisions that populism has ever been blamed for, Brexit. We welcome back Conservative politician Daniel Hannan and also Labour MP Stella Creasy, Robert Toombs, the historian of France and Britain, whose recent book is The Sovereign Isle, Britain in and out of Europe, and Dominic Grieve, former Conservative MP and former Attorney General for England and Wales. Chairing the debate is Johnny Diamond, BBC News presenter and royal correspondent. A busy week for him, so here's Johnny with more. Thank you and welcome, welcome to this gorgeous hall and what a joy it is to be with you in person and to those who are watching, welcome as well. Um, you are well aware we're here to debate the proposal we were right to Brexit. Um, I know how personally many people took the referendum and the months and years after that. I think it's probably worth, before we start, bearing in mind the words of the Queen at the end of the Jubilee, where she praised the kindness, joy and kinship that she felt had sprung up and said that she hoped that the sense of togetherness, her own phrase, would last beyond the event. Let's certainly hope it can last beyond this debate um, in the knowledge that we all need to leave the same hall and go into our small, very beautiful and often very damp island and live together. Um, I should make one full point of disclosure. Um, I know Dan socially, we've met a couple of times. Um, Dominic Grieve, I waved at once in central London, he did not wave back to me. Um, A social and professional snub that will cause him great suffering in the evening to come. Um, Before we start, we're going to ask you to submit your pre-vote to get an idea of where your opinions lie and, of course, to see if our speakers manage to change your opinion at all. If you haven't done so, um, you can hold up your phones and scan the QR code behind me or use the link that you received before the event. Please vote for the motion, against the motion, or if you are unsure, undecided. If you're watching on the live stream, just click on the polls button to vote. We'll announce the pre-vote results after we've heard the opening speeches. We have a lovely panel here, a fascinating panel and a high-profile panel, Um, and I'm not going to run through all of their biographies. You probably know them and we'll introduce them one by one. The format of the evening is relatively simple. Each speaker will address you for nine minutes. Um, I will uh, do that. That was terrible, sorry. Uh, I'll try and make more noise at eight minutes and they'll need to wrap at nine. We will then um, put a couple of points back and forth to them, we'll announce the pre-vote, and then we'll move to questions. Um, And I'll probably repeat this, but it is questions rather than statements, points to be made to our speakers, rather than points you are making to the rest of the audience, if you can work out my fine (laughs) delineation there. Let's move straight to the debate. Um, The first speaker who is in favour of the motion is Lord Hannan, Daniel Hannan, former Conservative member of the European Parliament for South East England, of course a 
prominent and very positive campaigner for Brexit, one of the very few who went on and made the case for the sunlit uplands that were going to emerge, may yet emerge, out of Brexit. And he has nine minutes. Dan. Well, Johnny, thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you all for coming. I'm conscious that this is something of an away fixture. This is not just a, a London crowd, but a cool part of Camden. So this is, you know, this is Manchester City at Old Trafford, as it were. This is, this is Everton uh, at Anfield, or, uh, or Ian Botham doing a tour of Pakistan, or, or Rishi Sunak coming to Boris's birthday party. This is, uh, you know, then the king commanded, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. I, I want to start by echoing the point that Johnny just made, or rather that he, as the BBC's royal correspondent, echoed from the Queen's Majesty about togetherness. I'll tell you my single biggest regret about the referendum and its aftermath was the polarization and the nastiness that followed, which I have to say I don't remember from the campaign itself. I was out manning street stalls, campaigning almost every day, and very often we would run into campaigners from the other side in their blue, stronger in t-shirts, and we'd pose for selfies together, and we'd wish each other luck, and it was still a fairly civil and civilized conversation. I remember speaking from this very stage about a week before the vote, uh, with Adam Zamoyski and the late Roger Scruton, among others, and it was a, 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 an edifying disagreement about trade and tariffs and sovereignty and money and all the rest of it. The, the, the way in which both sides went into purity spirals and made this about identity and about what kind of people they imagined on the other side, I think is my single biggest regret. And so I don't want to add to the polarization tonight, so let me begin by making what I hope would be, in normal circumstances, a completely uncontroversial point, which is that whatever decision we'd made in June 2016, there were going to be positive and negative outcomes. There were risks and gains with staying in, there were risks and gains with leaving. And let me add that not everyone will have got the version they wanted. I was, uh, as some of you will know, I was, a, I was an EFTA man all the way through. I thought we should have gone for a Swiss-type deal. I think it would have saved us a lot of trouble to have gone for an off-the-shelf uh, deal. I didn't get exactly what I wanted. Neither will Robert have done, neither will Boris have done, right? Because all of these things are compromises. So I'm not going to try and argue here that everything is perfect. But perfection is not for this sublunary world. But I am going to argue that it is better on balance than the alternative would have been. First of all, let me make the point that the predictions of disaster that were made not just by campaigners, which is fair enough, both sides are obviously going to put their, their best gloss on things, but were made by the official bodies, the Bank of England, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the Treasury, IMF, the OECD, spectacularly failed to materialize. Uh, we were told that if we voted leave, the stock exchange would immediately collapse. It carried on rising. We were told that if we voted leave, unemployment would surge. It fell and fell and fell, fell to its lowest level uh, prior to the coronavirus. There were more people in work than ever before in British history. Uh, we were told that house prices would collapse. They rose. We were told that there would be disinvestment, that there would be this massive recession. Again, this was, this was not the Remain campaign saying this. We were told by the Treasury that there would be a recession in 2016, stretching into 2017, that emphatically did not happen. In fact, 
you know, we, we can argue the toss about whether it would have been even better had we stayed in or whatever, and you know, necessarily we're dealing with alternative histories there. But the one thing which I want to, to, to say, I think fairly uncontroversially, is that it was not catastrophic, and that the evidence of that is that prior to the uh, coronavirus, the UK economy had outgrown the Eurozone economy. So whether it might have been even better or whatever, look, you, you'll all have your own views, but the, the, the prediction of an absolute calamity failed to materialize, as, by the way, did the various predictions of non-economic calamities. We were told that if we voted to leave, Scotland would immediately leave the Union. In fact, support for the United Kingdom, according to the opinion polls, rose in Scotland after the vote. Uh, we were told that if we voted to leave, there would be refugee camps in Kent, that all of the, 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 the sort of Songat refugee uh, is, uh, um, infrastructure would move in some unspecified way uh, to, to British soil. Of course, that didn't happen. And in fact, we were told that if we voted to leave, that the country would become more closed to migration. That has emphatically not happened. If you look at the numbers of visas in any category, Given this year, they are higher than pre-referendum, higher uh, than pre-Brexit. Whether you're looking at work visas, student visas, family unification, we have become a much more uh, global country and with the bonus that as levels of immigration have risen, concern about immigration has fallen because people are prepared to, to, uh, to sustain a, quite a large degree of immigration, provided they know that it is legal and controlled uh, rather than out of their hands, which was, of course, what we argued at the time. Finally, we were told that we wouldn't get any trade deals. And I have to say that this country has signed more trade deals in a shorter time than any other country, I think, ever. It's true, a lot of those replicate where we were with the EU, but that was done, and we've now moved on to the others. Uh, we're about to join the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a huge growing block representing nearly a third of the world's GDP. We are likely this year to become the first Western country to have a serious FTA or an FTA of any kind uh, with India. And of course, we've already got our deals with Australia and New Zealand. We're pushing ahead with South America, the Gulf and other places. I also think we've passed the two big tests one foreign and one domestic as an independent country. The first foreign test was, of course, the war in Ukraine. We were in the front line defending European values. We started earlier and we stuck at it harder. We were not under any threat from Russia. There was no scenario in which Russian troops were going to be marching through Kent. But as in 1914, as in 1939, we took our responsibilities seriously as a defender of European civilization. And not only did we lead the defense of Ukraine, the supply of weapons, but we were the first country to lift all of our tariffs and restrictions on Ukrainian exports. I'm glad to say the EU followed a few weeks later. Uh, now, of course, you could say, well, that we could have done all of those things in the EU. Yeah. Realistically, I don't think anyone in Brussels is actually arguing that that would have happened. We've set the, the, the moral tone and our neighbors followed. And then, of course, the first great national test was how to respond uh, to the virus, and we had we effectively won the vaccine race twice. First, uh, with the first jab uh, in the world, and the, the, the quickest vaccine rollout, and then with the quickest booster rollout. And again, you might say, well, technically, we could have still done that 
uh, if we were in the EU. Come on. Look at what almost every Remainer was arguing at the time, that we had to go into the EU vaccination procurement scheme, that we were going to be killing people if we didn't do it. Even as a non-member, we had to go along with what they were doing. Does anyone seriously imagine? I'm, I'm, I'm sure neither Dominic nor Stella will be uh, shifty enough to try and argue this, that we would, had we been a full member, that we would have been able to resist that pressure. So I think we have passed with flying colours. But I have to finish on this point. The EU, let's recall this, is the only actor to have put, however briefly, to have invoked a border in Ireland for the sole purpose of preventing vaccines reaching the United Kingdom. And what I infer from that is that although we are trying to be good neighbours, although we recognise that we want the EU to prosper just as we want it to be secure, we want it to be rich, we want them to be wealthy neighbours so that they're good customers and we like them, they have still not got over the idea that Britain is a recalcitrant province that needs to be taught a lesson and brought to heel. Ultimately, I would rather live in a generous, open, global country, interested and engaged in the affairs of every continent, including Europe, than in one that cannot get over its relations with its biggest market and closest neighbour. And that's why I am happy to live in a global Britain, prosperous, independent and free. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dan. Thanks. Uh, let's hear our first speaker against the motion. It is, of course, Dominic Grieve QC, who was the MP, Conservative MP for Beaconsfield, former uh, Shadow Home Secretary, Attorney General as well, and expelled from the party um, in the astonishing constitutional contortions of late 2019. Dominic, thank you. It's always a pleasure to have a discussion with Dan, whether it's on uh, Brexit, Europe, or anything else. His politeness is legendary, and uh, I have to say it makes a change from being called a French traiteur or um, other vile epithets which on occasion have been directed my way. But I have to say that before coming here this evening, my wife, who is pure Yorkshire, said to me, all you have to do is just go along and tell them in plain Anglo-Saxon how it is. I couldn't disagree more with Dan. The evidence, 18 months after we've come out of transition, is that this is the biggest mistake in modern British history, making massive self-inflicted wounds on our body politic and our unity, damaging to our economic well-being, our security, and indeed our sovereign power of influence in the world. Now, it may all have been done for very good reasons, and I don't doubt Dan's sincerity for one bit. Just before the referendum, he wrote a tremendous blog on Ian Martin's reaction piece, um, which, interesting, Ian Martin has written an article today expressing some misgivings about Brexit. And he said this, it's 24th of June 2025, and Britain is marking its annual Independence Day celebration. As the fireworks stream through the summer sky, still not quite dark, we wonder why it took us so long to leave. The years that followed the 2016 referendum didn't just reinvigorate our economy, our democracy and our liberty, they improved relations with our neighbours. The United Kingdom is now the region's foremost knowledge-based economy, and so on. Well, we're only three 
years away from that magical date. And the evidence is entirely to the contrary. We know that the Office of Budget Responsibility, government quango in a sense, but independent, has told us that the reduction in our GDP is going to be in the long term 4% as a consequence of Brexit, unless, of course, it's made up elsewhere. Seven out of 10 exporters, polled by the British Chamber of Commerce just recently, have said they have put it, been put at a severe competitive disadvantage. And the Food and Drinks uh, Organization has pointed out from its members that their exports are down 23.7% on those of 2019. There are massive costs to what we've done. The government is going to need, at a time when it says it wants to get rid of civil servants, 50,000 customs officials to deal with our own customs checks as and when we decide to bring them in. And that requires 205 million customs declarations a year, costing between 15 and 55 pounds each for every business and individual who has to do it. And where are the compensations? Dan, you spoke about these foreign trade agreements, but apart from the rolled over agreements we could have had with the EU, we haven't got them. The United States is much keener to do a trade deal with the EU than it is with us. The idea of a trade deal with China is for the birds, and I have to say, I think a trade deal with India is rather unlikely. And this wonderful trade deal with Australia, the government's own figures, is it will uh, reduce the cost of food products by one pound a year per household, 0.02% addition to our economy over 15 years. Our financial sector is suffering enormously. This is 80% of our GDP. Now, Dan, in his great paper, his polemic, told us, this wonderful thing, financial services, this is 2025 vision, are booming, not only in London, but in Birmingham, Leeds, and Edinburgh too. After Britain left, the EU's regulations became even more heavy-handed, driving more exiles from Paris, Frankfurt, and Milan to us. No other European city could hope to compete. Well, we've lost 7,000 jobs from the financial sector in London. That's the current position. And in addition to that, 400 uh, fin financial firms have moved, uh, which do euro dealing, have shifted off about 1.5 trillion of assets. One firm has pointed out Aquis, that 99.6% of its European share dealing is now done from Paris. And remember, this isn't just abstracts, because all this is about ultimately tax revenue for the government, which it loses. So I find it very difficult, and Amsterdam has overtaken us as the leading trading venue for share trading. So where's the future that was promised with that? Now, perhaps with deregulation, but I have to say, I'm not sure we're going to get it. Because actually, deregulating on your own, unless you do it in company with others, is in practice impossible. And immigration, well, we're very short of people to work in this country. 
500,000 people short in September 2021 to provide basic services. It's one of the reasons why unemployment's so low. But instead of a flexible mechanism by which people could come here and work and go home, we have a much less flexible mechanism, which then requires us to deal with hundreds of thousands of visa applications. I really wonder if the public suddenly decided that as long as it's a visa application, they're happy with it, but if it isn't, they're not. The truth with that is that this suggestion that was made at the time has absolutely no validity to it. Now, levelling up. Levelling up agenda is about pumping money into places which need levelling up. Well, all I can say is that whereas we were pumping in £4.5 billion of EU money before we left, which the government promised it would replace as part of its levelling up agenda, actually the maximum they can afford at the moment is £2.6 billion per annum. So how does that help the Prime Minister's aspirations? And then I turn to influence because I think it really does matter. Because I'm old-fashioned conservative. I understand about influence and I'm very proud of my country. But I have to say, it absolutely beats me how Brexit makes us more influential. I spent my time as chairman of the ISC between 2016 and 2019 being visited by foreign delegations from countries outside of Europe saying Britain's role in our area is weakening. You are over-obsessed with your domestic problems, you're not looking at us, and we're looking elsewhere for friendly influence. Even with the Ukraine, ultimately, I'm very proud of what we're doing in the Ukraine, for the Ukraine, very much in favour of it. But I simply say this, France and Germany are the lead countries on the policy of the EU towards the Ukraine, and the EU is divided on policy towards the Ukraine. Does Britain have more influence over that in or out of the EU? That's ultimately where the key decisions will be made along with the United States. And as divisions appear, that's where the problems will come from. And our ability to influence those is reduced, and our behaviour of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which highlights so completely the problem that we have in bringing a proper Brexit about, is going to damage our ability to do that still further. And that brings me to my final point. I can't escape the fact that on Monday, 148 of my former colleagues in Parliament voted to get rid of the Prime Minister. And they did it because he was dishonest, and because he's a charlatan, and because he's doing great damage to this country. But he isn't there by accident. He got there, Dan, because in the middle of the inability to deliver a sensible Brexit by proper means, people turned to somebody who would do it by fraud. And that is the, what is now haunting our country's politics and our well-being. And I have to say, it's a direct consequence of what we did in 2016. Dominic, thank you. Dominic, thank you very much. Um, and at only four seconds over, you were very, very disciplined. Thank you. Um, our third speaker tonight, arguing in favour of the motion, is Professor Robert Toombs, historian of France and Britain, fellow of St John's College, Cambridge, whose most recent book is This Sovereign Isle, Britain in and out of Europe. Robert, thank you. 
Thanks very much. It's good to be here uh, and a rather younger audience than I expected. Often it's rather middle-aged people who come to these things. I'm glad to see that you're not. Though I think that probably means you're more, uh, uh, shall I say, favoring the other side than you are favoring our side. Um, I had some qualms about leaving the EU back in 2016. I was subject to project fear like most people were. Uh, I wasn't sure how it would work and I certainly hesitated about voting. I eventually voted leave. Since then I got involved more actively, I, I certainly was not actively involved in the campaign before, because it seemed to me that the, that the, the vote had to be carried out. And uh, uh, I'm rather, being rather proud that, the, that I helped to form a group called Briefings for Brexit, which uh, had the signal honor of recently being hacked by the Russians. So we, so we must be doing something right. They accuse us of, of, of um, plotting against the state. Anyway, but that's not the reason why I um, was in favor and am in favor of uh, having left the EU. I think the big reasons for doing so are the same now as they were in 2016. Uh, and I guess I'm a bit of an idealist on this matter because I think of it more in terms of Europe. The debate or the discussion that takes place in this country is almost entirely about us. It's an amazingly insular one. I don't think Mr. Grieve once mentioned Europe as an entity, as, a, as an institution. Uh, and that's what I'm going to do because that's what I think it really ought to be about. The EU is, first of all, damaging to democracy. It's an undemocratic indeed a consciously and deliberately anti-democratic institution. It's run by a rather corrupt elite, which despises opposition. Uh, it's, it's one aspect of what political scientists call the withdrawal of elites. They withdraw into institutions so that they're no longer accountable to their voters. Uh, the EU is run in secret, and not surprisingly, less than a quarter of the people of Europe feel that they understand how it works. That's natural, because that's how it's meant to be. If you were annoyed about illegal consumption of birthday cake, which I'm sure many of you were, you must be incandescent at what the leaders of the EU get up to. Uh, Christine Lagarde, chair of the European Central Bank, was found guilty of complicity in malversation of 400 million euros of public funds. Um, the present president of the Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, was found in 2016 to have uh, plagiarized her PhD dissertation. The man who represents Europe to the world, Josep Borrell, had to resign his position as chair of the European uh, University Institute because he'd kept secret the fact that he was being paid 300,000 a year by a Spanish energy company. Those are the sorts of people who, who run the EU. If it was a brilliant success, we might might put up with this, but it's a failure to in its fundamental aims of peace and prosperity. It's impoverished a large part of Europe through the Euro system. 20 of the EU's member states actually saw their growth rates fall after they joined. There's been a popular decline in support continuously since the 1990s. In France, which is the country most similar to us among the European member states, only about, a, only about a third of the people say they trust the EU. The world's changing. Europe's becoming less important economically and politically. We may lament this, but it's a fact. The 20th century was continental. The 21st century will be oceanic. That will be the theater of power, of geopolitics, of commerce. Who said that? 
Emmanuel Macron. The economic importance of the EU to Britain has been declining continuously for decades. It's still worth about 13% of GDP, but this is mainly trade with four or five EU countries. So most of the EU is in fact pretty irrelevant to us. We have a huge deficit in trade with the EU, though it's actually improved since we left. And we have a surplus with the rest of the world, so it's clearly advantageous for us to diversify or to continue to diversify our trading relations and to encourage this by the sort of trading policies that Dan Hannan referred to. The growth in our exports to the EU have been increasing by 0.5% a year since the early 2000s. Uh, six times faster have been our exports to the rest of the world. That's where our future interest lies. Those are the reasons for voting in 2016, but there are new reasons since, I would say, and Daniel uh, has uh, mentioned some of them, so I won't go over them again. The COVID crisis, yes, we could have produced vaccines inside the EU, but when the government decided not to, it was, it was roundly criticized by the opposition. It's very, it seems to be very unlikely that we would have um, uh, uh, developed our vaccines without, had we been members of the EU. Less than one-tenth of the people of Europe are happy with the way the EU handled the COVID epidemic. The EU has proved divided and weak at best over Ukraine. We are much more decisive and principled, I'm glad to say. And I find it very difficult to believe that our sovereign power of influence, as Mr. Grieve put it, has declined. The EU has proved antagonistic and rigid in its dealings with us, which I admit took me and many others by surprise. David Frost has said it surprised him. I'm sure it surprised Theresa May. I thought we could expect um, a friendly uh, um, desire for good relations from our European friends and partners, but the determination of the EU to punish Brexit is unmistakable and indeed unconcealed. The EU wants to keep Britain as a captive market for its exports, uh, unable to compete freely, and as a sort of political satellite too, a plan which was recently revived again by, by Macron. For all these reasons, the EU has exploited the Ireland situation in a reckless manner, risking political instability and summarily refusing every proposal to solve the problem practically. Its representatives have frequently used provocative language and tried to interfere in internal politics, admittedly with the encouragement of some Remainer politicians. Almost as unforgivable were the shameful attacks on the AstraZeneca vaccine by Merkel, Macron and the EU. And one could also mention crude threats over fishing. So, of course, one might conclude that we should regret leaving the EU or contemplate rejoining because they're a nastier lot than we realised, but that's not a course I favour. And finally, Project Fear has proved empty. It was fear that motivated most of the Remain vote. Two-thirds said that they voted mostly out of economic worry or fear of isolation, and I was nearly one of those. A million fewer jobs, said the CBI. Eight million job losses, said Remainer MP Heidi Allen. An emergency budget and tax rises, said George Osborne. A recession, half a million job losses, falling wages, said the Treasury. Uh, by the way, it's the Treasury figures that are still being quoted by the OBR, which Mr. Grieve referred to, although they've been wholly discredited. In fact, after the 2016 vote, the economy grew faster than the Eurozone, unemployment fell, and wages rose. So all these fears have proved unfounded, although there's a constant attempt to keep Project Fear alive by blaming every setback on Brexit. 
uh, automatically siding with the EU against the British government on every occasion, irrespective of the facts. Now, what is the real economic situation now? Sorry, is that one minute or is that the end? Ah, okay. Food prices are going up. The fault of Brexit? Well, they're going up more in the Eurozone. GDP growth is higher in the Eurozone than uh, in, and it was in 2021-2022. Uh, uh, we have had a fall in our exports to the EU, but they're mainly due to oil, uh, because we don't produce as much and we don't sell as much as we used to. But in goods, there's been no fall in our exports to the EU. And as I said earlier, our net trading position, that's to say the comparison of exports and imports to and from the EU, has actually improved since 2016. Uh, for many of our leading companies, over 60% of their trade is now outside the EU. But, but I'll stop there. Um, conclusion, Brexit, I think, was a rejection of pessimism and declinism, the idea that we were not capable of governing ourselves, we were too weak to exist as a separate, as a separate and independent nation. And it was an endorsement of national democracy. And for that reason alone, we were right to Brexit. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. Thank you. Thank you very much, Robert. I should say, when one speaker is up, the other two speakers huddle like this. I'm, I'm craning to hear what they have to say to each other, but we will hear it out loud. Our final speaker making the case against the motion is Stella Creasy, Labour MP for Walthamstow since 2010 and chair of the Labour Movement for Europe. Stella. It's always marvellous when your mother's in the audience. Um, 
Did anybody notice that both the speakers for the proposition got their defence in early, suggested that you wouldn't be open-minded on this, that you probably had already made up your mind? I wonder what it is, ladies and gentlemen, that makes them not be confident in the case they want to make this evening. And I think it's something rather simple. It's that I'm not sure we've actually had the Brexit that they promised us. I think we might have had Brexit in name only. So let's look at the actual evidence of this. And, and I talk about Brexit since it actually happened, not 2016, but actually when we did leave the single market and join this wonderful free trade agreement. Because all the evidence suggests that we have all the economic and social hit of leaving the European Union, but none of the freedoms and benefits that were promised. No one, least of all Daniel I know, can be happy with that. Daniel, I think of rather affectionately as the Kaiser Soze of Brexit. You didn't see him coming, but we've all seen the consequences. To be fair to Daniel, he wasn't one of those people promising us that net migration would be under 100,000 a year. That was Michael Gove. It is now 239,000 a year. He didn't drive a bus with 350 million for the NHS written on the back of it. To be fair, the NHS has had more money. That's down to the pandemic, not Brexit. And he didn't say we would take back control of our fish. Uh, but the new research showing this year that significant EU access to the waters around the UK remain, indeed, to those six to seven, 12 nautical miles that we were promised would be ours and ours alone. And in fact, the evidence shows us that since we left the European Union, the Brexit trade deal means that exporting fish and seafood costs more and takes longer. So the fish is less fresh and the customers have been lost. So perhaps have more chips and less fish with your national dish, thanks to Brexit. Daniel did say we could do better than being part of this regional association, he calls it, largest trading block in the world to everybody else. But no matter, geography wasn't important to him. The UK is yet to implement, though, since we left the European Union, a single brand new trade deal that it couldn't have had under the existing terms of the European Union, even in our relationship with Japan. Indeed, the only point of contention about the new trade deal with Japan is whether we are worse off than we would have been if we'd stayed in the European Union. Daniel didn't argue that we would need to leave the single market, but has now argued that we should never have left, but it would be mad to go back. It's a bit like being locked out of your house, but then saying it's madness to go and see a locksmith and get some keys cut so that you can actually get back in. So this, this Brexit that nobody will take responsibility for, what has it given us? Well, as Ian Martin, that well-known Ramona, has told us, exports to the EU, I'm sorry to report, Robin, Rod, Robert, rather, are down almost 12%. That's not an insubstantial figure. Indeed, the UK in a changing Europe's research, an independent body, shows that Brexit has precipitated a 25% fall in imports. Why does that matter? Because the fall in imports isn't just about whether you can eat French brie or have um, a German sausage. It's actually about the money and the, the impact that you have on our production lines. Two thirds of international trade is products that we use as inputs in our chains of production and supply chain. What does that mean in practice for all of us? It means it's much harder for our businesses to make do. Little wonder that EU-UK trade relationships are down 33%, and it is mainly small businesses. We might be a nation of shopkeepers, but many are shutting up shop as a result of Brexit. Indeed, it has affected the cost of living, the biggest crisis that we now face post-pandemic. The increase in those trade barriers has led to a 6% increase in food prices. Again, not my words, 
Thirds, the UK and a changing Europe independent research. Inflation in food products that Britain tends to import from the European Union, like fresh pork, tomatoes and jams, was much more pronounced than that tuna or exotic fruit. So basically, ladies and gentlemen, you're left with a Hawaiian pizza and not much else. Because you cannot eat red tape, but you've got an awful lot more of it as a result of Brexit. And that is a hit not just for trade, but also for our tax take. Because the OBR, again, an independent body, I'm sorry to disappoint you, Robert, shows that economic growth is down 4% as a result of these trends. And every 1% of loss of growth is a £9 billion loss of revenue for the NHS, for social care, for our policing. But what about those regulatory freedoms we were promised? Surely, surely those are those sunny, uplit lands. Well, the reality shows us that since we've left the European Union, very little has changed, and it's not hard to see why. The divergence tracker shows us that for all those freedoms that were hard fought by people like Daniel and Robert, there are only 27 cases of actual divergence from those thousands of restrictive rules that the EU brought us in. Let's have a look at what some of those might be, those benefits that you are voting for if you vote yes tonight. Well, they do include trophy hunting, but not foie gras and fur, because of course nothing is too good for the workers. Um, it is about compensation on flights. Uh, the government is using divergence to make sure that you don't get as much compensation if your flight is delayed. If you are sat at Gatwick in the coming weeks, do think about that one as a benefit of Brexit. Um, also, non-recognition of blue badges for disabled people. Again, a point of divergence that the government has yet to do anything about for those 2.3 million of people for whom a blue badge is a critical way of moving around the country. As, again, UK and Changing Europe point out, the benefits of Brexit document that the government produced, all 105 pages, was not short of ideas, but many of those ideas were things that you could have done in the European Union anyway, and most are recycled. And possibly asking readers of The Sun, as Jacob Rees-Mogg has now done, to come up with ideas isn't the best use of those few civil servants that have actually come into the office's time. Because the truth is, any radical divergence is unlikely to be possible because it, what it does to business is ask them to choose. It asks them to choose whether they would only trade in the UK or whether they would only trade with Europe or whether they want to run two separate regulatory regimes. And with an audience nearby of 600 million customers, it's not hard to see why business is calling for the government not to be radical. And indeed, there are some regulations you probably do want to keep for good reason. For example, right now, the government is having to reconfigure our airline safety regulations. The ones that we've had from Europe that meant that planes were flying to AP could be equally safe everywhere, we're having to redo. We haven't, in the two minutes I've got left, even got time to talk about services or employment rights, but when people talk about European red type, that's often what they mean. The fact that you can have an employment contract at all that comes from Europe, that equal pay is underpinned by European law. And we know from the Beecroft report where this government is intending to go on those things. And indeed, libertarians such as Daniel and Robert are often fond of telling us about the dangers of these overbearing states. But when the state itself is taking away your rights, who is it who's left to look after you? And one of the challenges here is that the EU was giving you many more protections than you might have realised including on decent consumer rights, whether you could indeed just buy one charger for your phone. I don't know about you, but I'd rather carry around one cable than many. Again, something that this government has decided not to pick up. We haven't even talked about the shame that is what is happening in Northern Ireland as a result of playing fast and loose with the Good Friday Agreement. But if we've got Brino, has the EU changed, might be your question. Well, surely we've achieved that. We've given them the short, sharp shock of walking out 
Well, not really. Actually, the EU has worked together in Ukraine, and we have been outside the room looking in. The EU, again, has started to work together on refugees, yet we are outside the room looking in and deciding to deport people to Rwanda. What have we got out of Europe then? Well, fewer politicians. We don't have MEPs like Daniel was. We've got those blue passports and the crown stamp on your pint glass. And some people have made an awful lot of money out of it. Uh, Crispin O'Day, a hedge fund manager who lately contributed £650,000 to the pro-leave campaign, made £220 million betting as the pound collapsed post-Europe. And of course, it is given work for politicians like myself. When you've got 1,500 pieces of legislation to rewrite, we can do that rather than deal with the cost-living crisis or climate change or the social care crisis. So the answer is you must vote that we were wrong to do Brexit, but also we now need to fix it. That's not about rejoining, that's not on the table, and it's not something I'm advocating, but it is about accepting responsibility. And your vote tonight for the point that Dominic and I make is to make people like Daniel and Robert take responsibility because, Daniel, you quoted the Henry the V speech, Henry the V speech, rather, um, when the campaign run, the band of brothers who fought for our freedom. Um, not least because that speech talks about those who were not there should hold their manhoods cheap when they weren't fighting with you. And I'll leave you, ladies and gentlemen, to think about what manhoods they're talking about. Because, frankly, the Brexiteers got this country by the short and curlies. But as Mar Queen Margaret in Henry VI taught us, wise men ne'er sit and wail their loss, but cheerily seek how to redress their harms. So by voting with myself and Dominic tonight, you are sending a message to Robert and to Daniel to be a little less of a hooray Henry and much more like Maggie. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much. Thank you, Stella. Um, uh, in a moment, in a moment, I'm going to announce the results of the pre-vote. Um, before I do that, can I just uh, try and stitch this panel together a little bit? Um, Dominic Grieve said that the Brexit vote had damaged um, our sovereign power of influence. I hope I don't misquote you, though I'm fairly sure I got it right. Um, on the opposite side, Dan said that the first foreign test was the war in Ukraine, a suggestion that really of a completely different view of sovereignty and power. Dan, Dominic said that because we were outside the EU room on the Ukraine, we had lost influence. Your suggestion is that this, this test had been passed. Can I ask what, what the test is that you well, see and how it's been passed? You would expect Dominic and me to disagree. But how about we allow either Volodymyr Zelensky or Vladimir Putin to, to determine this, that they both see us as respectively their greatest adversary or the, their greatest supporter in the case of Ukraine. If I may, there's one thing that Dominic absolutely got me on, and which I hold my hands up. He, he's right, I totally failed to foresee the once in a century pandemic. Okay. All, of the, uh, all of the predictions that uh, the more extreme Remainers were making during the campaign about backed up motorways in Kent and grounded flights and empty shelves and people not being able to travel, all of that came true, of course, for okay. us as for every other country in the world. Okay. But I think that it is only fair to, to say, because we're, we're hearing all this stuff about we're, we're slower growing this year. We are slower growing this year because we did our growth spurt last year because we came out of the pandemic before uh, uh, okay, the no. EU because okay, we no. had okay, a necessary okay. um, Can I get a, um, Robert, can I put a point to you? You, you said, and you, you described your hesitation in the vote. You said you were surprised, and you are a professor, I don't know, of French history, surprised by the antagonism that Britain um, faced from the EU. And I, 
I'm, I, I'm hesitant to quote Voltaire to you on the execution of Admiral Byng when he said it was to encourage the others. He, of course, said it in French. Are you that surprised that France and Germany and the Netherlands were going to be such hard negotiators when we had decided to leave? Um, what I thought was that they would see that, that it was in their long-term interest to have a good relationship with us as their largest customer, the most powerful European state, their main protector, in fact, um, uh, the main protector of European security after the United States, and that this would, they would take a long-term view of this and accept a democratic decision. Instead, they tried to reverse that decision or to aid those who were trying to reverse it by, by making the negotiations as difficult as possible and, I would say, abusing their position over things like Ireland. Okay, they were helped by the appalling weakness of the Theresa May government and also by the divisions within the House of Commons uh, after her disastrous election semi-defeat. Uh, but yes, I, I, I don't blame the EU for being hard bargain, bargainers. I do criticise them for being short-sighted. Okay, thank you very much. Um, lastly, Stella, can I just ask you, you, you gave a long list of rights that we may or may not have given up, that we may or may not diverge from. Mm -hmm. Do you see any value, since we're discussing whether we are right to Brexit, to regrounding those rights in the British Parliament and making a shorter line of connection between voter and law? I, what I see is a government that is willing to use the Henry VIII powers, that whatever rights you have in the UK Parliament, they will supersede them in a small committee of 16 people for whom they've stacked in favour of them. So actually, I think never more is it important to have a third party standing up and defending you and giving you somewhere to seek redress. And uh, that puts me at odds with the libertarians I find rather bizarre, but then I also never thought I'd be a red arguing against red tape, and yet this government is bringing even more of it as a result of Brexit. Lovely. Thank you very much indeed. Um, so the pre-vote um, was as follows. In favour of the nation, 21%. Against, 65%. And the lucky undecideds uh, are 14%. Let us go to questions. There are microphones going to be sort of passed around the room um, or run to you at various points. Um, I have to say, when I do these things generally, I rarely let the microphone get into the hand of the audience because they refuse to give it back. Please do give it back. I think we're going to go, first of all, we have some guests from Mill Hill School here. Uh, and I think, am I right, Josie? First of all, I would encourage everyone with thoughts and questions to, to offer them, but in the form of questions, a rising intonation at the end of the sentence is the clue that it's a question. Uh, Josie, um, when you're ready. Would both groups not agree that it's still too early to know whether we were right to Brexit? Thank you very much indeed. I have to say, it's a pretty good question. Um, was it too, is it too early to decide whether we were right to Brexit? Um, from your side, Daniel. Dominic. I always say Nobody can tell what the situation is going to be like in 20 years' time. I said that at the time of the referendum in 2016. Long-term projections about a country's future are very difficult. But the short to medium-term projections are, I think, absolutely startlingly clear, which is that we have taken a significant economic hit, which I think will take us into a form of stagflation. I'm old enough to know what it was like. It's what took me into politics as a conservative in the 1970s, when we were just joining the then EEC, but actually the benefits of it were not, hadn't made themselves felt, which really came in particularly with Margaret Thatcher's single market, which we're now out of. And I think 
that the evidence is overwhelming. And what is most remarkable, and I think this really is clear, is that Daniel and Robert can both argue that you know, if you'd wait another five years, things are going to get better. But actually, it is really hard to identify a single concrete benefit that has come to us from leaving the EU either of a material character, I cannot think of one. You know, all right, putting the crown on, we could, put, we could put the crown on the pint glass without leaving. We could have had blue passports without leaving if we chose to. We could have decided to do our own thing on vaccines if we had been in the EU. So you know, th these things are non-existent. We have great freedom of action. So I simply cannot see what the benefits are at the moment. Now, I accept, you know, in this wonderful thing that Daniel wrote in 2016, there were aspirations which he plainly believed would be sufficient to give us a much better sense of national well-being and economic security and wealth for everybody by going but they just haven't happened, and I doubt they ever will. Okay, Daniel. I'll tell you the other thing that I failed to predict, apart from the once-in-a-century pandemic. I could not have predicted that the majority of MPs in Parliament would pass an act saying we will not permit Britain to leave the EU except on terms that Brussels likes. How do you expect the EU to respond when they're given that opening. And so all of the criticisms we are getting about the short-term difficulties, about particularly about the Northern Ireland Protocol, those were products of the Ben Act. And, and the politicians who voted to take the power away from the government and to give the EU that extraordinary, uh, which they couldn't get over uh, a negotiating advantage, were featured prominently uh, Stella and Dominic. So I don't think that they get to make that criticism. Daniel, Daniel can, I, can I ask you to address Josie's Yes, it was an excellent question. Whether that, it that is was, the right well, time. So that was, that, I thought it was, it was a very good question, Josie. That's part of my answer, right? The, the, now that there is a majority uh, in Parliament, it's a different story. So we, we are dealing with some of the, the legacy of the terms on which we left. The other thing that is just never debated, that seems to have completely disappeared from our discourse, is what's happening in the EU. And one of the oddest things is that the EU has become this kind of symbol against which people measure themselves one way or the other. The, the flaws in the European project, the lack of democracy, the, 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 the sclerotic way of, of decision-making, the corruption, those things have completely disappeared from our debate. And so we have to constantly ask ourselves, what is it that is the alternative? What would we be doing if we'd stayed in? I cannot think of any example in the long term of a country that has become poorer and less successful as a result of becoming more independent. And I don't expect us to be the first exception. Okay, okay. Look, we're going to leave it there on the questions. And forgive me, I know there were lots of people who didn't get a chance, both at home, um, wherever you are, uh, far flung, um, or in the hall, and apologies for that. Thank you to um, all of our panelists for giving um, their responses, uh, candid and clear. It's time for a closing statement. And uh, you only have one minute, I'm afraid, and that will be strict um, with the tapping of the glass. There is no warning tap this time around. Stella Creasy, would you like to start? Dominic. Oh, sorry, yeah. Dominic, would you like to start? <laughs> You'll take it now. Dominic. We've plainly made a major error. Is the country in a better condition today than it was in 2016? That's, that seems to me the only way you can answer this question at the moment. Of course, you can look to potential future, 
But um, unless you're going to project a long way ahead and take big gambles, rationally, when you see where the UK was in June 2016, when we went into that referendum and it took place, you saw that, in fact, we had the fastest growing economy in Europe. You saw we had more investment than any other European country. And that actually, we were beginning to perform economically in a way that was even challenging German performance. And you look where we are now, our ability to provide for the well-being of our citizens has been adversely affected in a major way. And on top of that, our global influence has been diminished. And I listen to all these things about sovereignty, but I have to say to you, absolute sovereignty does not exist. Sovereignty is about making choices about who you cooperate with. We've made a choice to stop cooperating, and we're paying the price for it. And it's the cooperation with our nearest neighbours. Thank you very much indeed. Um, I don't know which of you two would like to go first. Uh, Robert, are you happy to go first? Okay. Well, I, I tried to talk about the EU and about democracy, and the other side answers by talking about having one sort of telephone cable and uh, arguing about statistics. Uh, we were not only the fastest growing economy in Europe in 2016, we've been the fastest growing economy in Europe from the year 2000 to the year tw 2021. Um, Brexit didn't make any difference about that. But my, my, standard, my stand on this is not about one year's or two year's or three year's economic growth figures, but about the long-term future of the country as a democratic nation. And that, I think, is what we voted for in 2016. What some people tried to prevent, and what I hope we shall have a government which will eventually carry out. Thank you very much indeed, Robert. That's excellent. Thank you. And Dominic, if you would. Oh, I'm so sorry, <laughs> forgive me. I've got confused with the bright lights. Stella, of course, thank you. Everybody needs a bogeyman in life, someone to blame when things get tough. The European Union has been Britain's bogeyman for failing to deal with the endemic challenges we've had in our country for far too long. And just as Kaiser Zose reveals themselves at the end of the usual suspects, so you also have an opportunity here to be very clear that you won't be hoodwinked. You've seen the lorry parks, you've seen the price rises, you've seen the people struggling to get visas, you've seen the division in our country, and yes, you've seen the challenges with the multiple charging cables for your phones. The questions are, what are we going to do about it? I didn't come into politics to sit and repeat myself. I know that might sound surprising. And yet what we are doing in Parliament is repeating the same pieces of legislation because ultimately when it comes down to a union, no union is perfect. You get out of it what you put into it. We walked away from the European Union, sir. We walked away from our opportunity to block the things that we didn't like. Now it's time we take responsibility for sorting out the problems that we have created and sorting out the challenges that our country have. And I would much rather spend my time talking about those and making things better for my constituents whether the European Union were in it or out of it. But do I think we could have done that more easily in the European Union? Of course. Thank you very much indeed. And to give us our final summary, uh, Dan. Johnny, just very quickly to answer your question about inflation, I just looked up the ONS figures for May. UK inflation was 6.7%. Eurozone inflation was 7.7%. Forgive me. EU Thank inflation you. overall was 8.9%. So there's, there's Thank your you very much now, indeed. Thank well, you for looking at Here is up. the thing that is never debated, that is always missed out. Right? What about the EU and what's happening there? I am convinced that if David Cameron had come back with a single retrieval of power, with one concession, he would have won the referendum because he would have been able to refute the idea of a one-way street, of a ratchet. He'd have been able to say, look, powers can come down. It's not always being centralized. Ponder what, the, what it means that the EU was readier to lose its second financial contributor than to allow any devolution of power from Brussels to the national level. 
And since the result in the UK, some have reacted in Brussels with anger, some with scorn, some with disbelief. No one, no one has said, oh, I wonder why they voted leave. I wonder whether, whether anyone else might have doubts. I wonder whether we might have played that differently. On the contrary, they pushed ahead, uh, as we were hearing from John over here, with more integration, particularly in the fiscal and military fields. And so staying in the EU was never a status quo option. Staying in the EU means being incorporated into an ever closer policy, evolving all of the attributes and trappings of nationhood. I would rather live in a free democracy than in a multinational empire. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. Um, it is time to vote and to see yes, if... Yeah, oh, there is a point of order here that if uh, Daniel has been able to provide figures, let us provide the evidence that when you strip out the impact of the energy costs, inflation in the UK is 1.6% higher than Germany, 3 percentage points higher than France, and more than 3 percentage points higher than Italy. Indeed, UK core inflation is catching up with core inflation in the US, despite the US okay. having a much greater fiscal stimulus. Okay. That but, is Brexit. We're gonna, we're gonna, well, we, we'll, we'll, we, we'll, we'll have, we will have to leave the statistics. I need... What I, what I would like you to do, however, is to now vote. Um, uh, and we'll see if anyone has had their mind changed or swayed by what you have heard tonight. Look, whilst you are voting, um, I'd quite like just to pick up a couple of points if I could. Stella, um, you spoke about a bogeyman um, that enabled politicians to hide behind it. Is there anything, is there any advantage, do you think, in there no longer being a bogeyman for Westminster politicians to hide behind, unable to say that's Europe's fault and to take responsibility? Is there any advantage? <laughs> Is there any disadvantage in politicians actually taking responsibility? See, most of the problems that you're talking about, it's like the issues around uh, refugees and immigration. The problem wasn't immigration. The problem is politicians not being honest with you about what the challenges were and how to make the system work. And now we're all fearing the consequence for it, whether in the NHS or indeed the horrific way that we're now responding to people coming from... Uh, overseas and being sent to Rwanda. I, I'm in favour of politicians being more transparent, and I think Fungus the Bogeyman rather gets in the way of that. Okay, thank you very much. Um, and Dan, may I ask you, I mean, bearing in mind the extraordinary number of visas that were issued um, in the last chunk of statistics that came out, what, last week, more than a million visas, whatever your opinion, do you not think that many of those who voted for Brexit will have been surprised and to some degree betrayed by the overall figure, notwithstanding your discussion of control. I have to say there's no evidence of that, either in the opinion polls or in conversations. I have a, a rule of thumb, yeah. a heuristic, if you will, that if any, if any British person tells you that the Brexit vote was all about immigration, you are talking to someone who voted Remain. No lever thinks that it was about immigration. We know that it was about democracy. Okay. Well, um, I, I have to say, <laughs> um, from my own experience, which was 10 weeks of travel around the United Kingdom, discussing this with everyone you could possibly imagine, uh, immigration played a large part in a significant number of people's decisions. Um, but that is only... how you voted, Johnny. No, 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 no that, that's, that's entirely unfair and a presumption. Um, however, the good news is uh, we do have the results in. 
Um, I have two sets of results that say first vote results on my screen. So I'm going to take a mad guess and say the one that is slightly varied. Ah, it's changed to final. Thank you very much indeed. Um, we have um, a swing, um, in fact. Uh, the undecideds have plummeted from 14% down to 2%. Those against the motion are at 67%. They were at 65%. And those for the motion are now 31%. They were at 21%. So you can see which way the debate has gone. Um, and it really only uh, leaves me to say thank you for coming. Thank you very much for watching at home as well. But thank you to our wonderful panelists. Thank you so much.